Welcome to Grand New Podcast. We are here with our friend Delegate Nick Freitas. He is here uh, coming to us live from Culpeper with his very nice paneling in his house. <laughs> very nice paneling. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. He, he, somebody got a good interior decorator. Um, <laughs> it's, my, it's Tina. I mean, Matt, you know Tina. Well, Tina's I got know, style. She does have style. Let's be real. <laughs> I love your wife. Um, but the, Except the choice of husband, right? That's her one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, we're so excited to have you on. Um, you're, there was news breaking. Let's just get right to it. There was news in the campaign today that some of your opponents came out and wanted to do ranked choice voting. And we're yeah. talking about some candidates want to do plurality and ranked choice. And I wanted to hear hmm. your thoughts about that. No, yeah. What's I, the I mean, deal? So the ideal with, and, and here's the important thing to understand. It's funny because one of the candidates is talking all about ranked choice voting. I've actually carried legislation in the general assembly for ranked choice voting. Right. And he voted against it, but now it's his favorite thing. Right? <laughs> um, here, here's what it comes down to. Um, the whole part or one of the purposes of a convention is to try to get to make sure that whatever candidate wins has over 50% of the vote, right? 50% plus one. That's, that's what you want. And so if in your traditional convention, the way that you typically do it is through multiple ballots, right? And each candidate gets up and gets to speak and, and then they vote and those candidates that drop off, leave, and then the next ones get up to speak again. And, and again, it's, and it's kind of a, it's an exciting thing. If we have to do a drive through, which is something that they've got a plan for, because chances are Governor Northam is going to continue to you know, play with the little reindeer games that he is. Um, the question was, is, okay, well, how do we have a balloting system where you could potentially still get to 50%? So the, the pushback on one side is, okay, well, that's not the same as multiple ballots at a convention because candidates don't have an opportunity to re-engage. The positive side is, well, it allows the candidate to get to 50% by ranking your, your uh, choices in order of preference. So this guy's my first choice, this person's my second, et cetera. And then as candidates fall off, they just, they, they take into account your second choice, your third choice, et cetera. Um, the bottom line is, is that I, I haven't been like our campaign has not been pushing on the seven district committee. Um, you know, I know how difficult it is to be in this position because I used to be a unit chairman. I used to be on the seven district committee. I know how hard it is to put these things together. So my campaign's not pushing for, for one thing or the other. The only thing we've asked is please come up with a process that's, you know, open, honest, transparent, follows the party plan. Um, so like, I don't, I don't have any like adverse reaction to ranked choice voting. Um, it's just not my decision as the candidate, right? That's, that's, the other thing I fought against was the incumbent protection plan in Virginia law, which used to state that incumbent Republicans got to select their method of nomination. And I thought that was totally wrong. It was all about giving uh, advantages to incumbents. So I, I've been very, very hands off on this idea of, of candidates trying to manipulate the process with respect to how we how we vote for our nominee. That's really a decision for the district committee and, and for the Republicans in the district. So. You know, again, if, if if the implication by the other side was that I'm somehow, you know, fighting against ranked choice voting or trying to get something else, that's just flat out untrue. Nick, do you think it's now time, especially with all this confusion that's going on now with this convention process, that we finally embrace as a party and as a state closed primaries so we don't have to do this again? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because, yeah, that, and that's a good point, Mike, because one of the chief reasons why we do conventions along with getting to 50% for our candidate, it's because we have the ability to keep Democrats from crossing over into Republican primaries and voting in them. And it's hard to tell how much effect crossover voting has. I think in some races, it's probably more significant than others. But either way, we've just gotten kind of tired of, of having this process where, you know, Democrats can vote in our primary. And the Democrats have been very, very good at settling on who their candidate's going to be long before they ever get to a primary. And it frees up all their voters to come and interfere in ours. And one of the solutions that's been offered for that is to have closed primaries and to have party registration. Um, I've gone, I, I really struggle with this because on one side, there's something kind of inherently frustrating to me about you having to go and register with the government based off of your political party. And I get concerned about the idea of, you know, could the government go and like, you know, potentially, you know, punish a business or could affect a, a grant that they got because, well, that owner of that business is a registered Republican and I don't like them. Um, you know, on the other side, you know, the open primaries, I think, to some degree is, is untenable. Um, another piece of legislation I carried at one point said that, well, I don't want public funding of party nominating contests. And I think that's that's one of the other key issues here with with the primary, too, is why do taxpayers have to pay for a private organization, in this case, a political party, uh, for their, their method to nominate somebody? Why do the taxpayers have to pay for that? And um, so I, I think by, by putting the party in control of the process, because again, we're a private organization with the Republican Party. And when we select our nominee, it should be the members of our party that get to select that nominee. And, you know, I, I think perhaps the best way to do it is just to take it out of the government's hands, let the party come out, let the party and the members vote on a method that they're going to do, let us as a party pay for it. And, you know, let, let the let there be a clear process. But I do think more and more, there used to be a very clear split between people like conventions and people like primaries. And especially after the uh, state primary that we had in Virginia with respect to the presidential campaign between Ted Cruz and, and Donald Trump at that point, you started to see different divisions in the party on who preferred conventions versus who preferred primaries. So I, I do think there's a way that we can come together and come up with kind of a, a fair process you know, remove any of the manipulation that sometimes happens and these, these strictly party run processes, which get complex with rules committees and credentials committees, uh, but ultimately still protect the integrity of the Republican nominating process and not create something where Democrats get to come in and, you know, mess with ours or, or Republicans mess with theirs. Well, it's, it's true that these methods aren't foolproof. I mean, for example, that you know, a convention nominated Ed Gillespie and a primary nominated Dave Brat. I mean, there's there's no there's no these methods aren't foolproof and nobody's exactly one hundred percent right and nobody's exactly one hundred percent. And certainly certainly one could point out in twenty eighteen your Senate race, the nomination of Corey Stewart, I'm mm -hmm. sure was pushed by Democrats. That's <laughs> Yeah, I I think that what, what we need to do, and I think what, our, what the people within the Republican Party expect, is an easy to understand, open, fair, and transparent process. And, and if we can get to that and we can get some consensus, because there have been a lot, there's been a lot of infighting, and some of it's been really, really destructive uh, based off of the method of nomination, because you, and again, I... <laughs> I think there's merits to various methods that we use. You know, I've really liked conventions in the past. I was totally fine with the seven district uh, picking a convention for this or primary, whatever they wanted. Cause I've, you know, I've been to both. 
Um, but I, I do think going forward, we're going to see more and more of a push for the people saying, look, we would like there to be some somewhat of a standard with respect to our nominating contest, something that we can expect and not have to wonder about year after year after year. Um, and again, I would hope to see that the party would be able to do that through the, the voting of our membership and the representation of our membership, rather than just, you know, handing the process over to the government to control. So one of the things that came out this week was that Abigail Spanberger said that the recent stimulus bill that mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi was putting through the Congress was a, quote, waste of time. Um, I'm yeah. wondering your reaction to that and see what your thoughts mm -hmm. were. Um, you know, that first stimulus had some good things in it, and then it had some really terrible things. I don't yeah. need... I don't need the Kennedy Center funded, uh, funded. I don't need, you know, state houses yeah. being rebuilt. Uh, you know, all this nonsense coming out of it. But I wanted to get your thoughts. Well, you know, again, I think my problem with, so first of all, I, I think a no vote on that $3 trillion stimulus was absolutely the right vote. Here's what confuses me about Abigail Spanberger's position on it, right? When, uh, you, you know, for instance, when Ben Klein voted no on that, or, or Rob Women or Morgan Griffith or Denver Righam, when they voted, that made perfect sense to me, right? But when Abigail Spanberger voted no on it, that only makes sense to me if you take into account the fact that she knows she's in a really, really tough election year, and she really campaigned heavy on being a moderate. I'm going to reach across the aisle. I'm not going to do what Nancy Pelosi tells me to do. Well, she's been there for a year and a half, and she's voted with Nancy Pelosi 96% of the time. A lot of the bad things within that bill that she's basically saying she didn't like or was a waste of time, she's voted for that type of spending in the past. So I don't think that this bill represented a major departure from where Abigail Spamberger has stood on other similar bills, legislation and spending. The only difference was is that she realizes that we are constantly calling her out for the fact that she campaigned one way and then as soon as she got up in DC, she fell right in line. Again, votes with Nancy Pelosi 96% of the time. Here's the part that I thought was even more fascinating. We went to 538 right, which is more of a, I mean, you could argue left of center, center sort of, you know, think tank analysis, running the data, the data and the number crunching. And we looked at which politicians had voted with Donald Trump and voted with the president more than Abigail Spanberger. And, and get this, the list included Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, and the list went on and on. So again, I, I would love to believe that Abigail has had this huge change of heart and is now far more skeptical of these government spending programs and, and whatnot. But I think in reality, what it is is she realizes that she is starting to be called out on the fact that she campaigned one way, has voted and legislated a different way, and she has to find new ways in order to demonstrate to people that you know she didn't she didn't deceive them when she ran the first time. Nick, part of the reason she won, um, you know, as you said, she promised to be a moderate and reflect the moderation of the district because it is growing. Uh, demographically, you know, in the Richmond suburbs, what is your plan to bring back those defected suburban voters yeah. that left Dave Brat? What would bring them back towards you? I, you know, I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is, you know, I, I think Republican principles are fantastic. I think when you look at the Republican creed, I think it's true. I think it works. I think it's effective. And I don't think it's just effective for, you know, rich people or just effective for Republicans. I think those basic principles, when we talk about fiscal responsibility and constitutional limitations on government power, free markets and, and opportunity and equality before the law, I, I think those are things that actually resonate. 
I think one of our biggest problems as Republicans is we haven't always been the best messengers of what we believe. And a lot of the way that we talk about conservative principles is either academic in nature or it's, it's you know, we like to put up a lot of statistics or charts. And we, we don't get down to the brass tacks of what it is that we're really about. And what we're really about is individual liberty. We're about you having the right to live your life the way you want. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to use the government to control other people or to force them to make decisions simply because I might think they're good decisions. Right. And, and let's face it, we have had Republicans that when they get into office, they think, oh, well, this is our turn to use the government to force people to do what we think they should do. No, that's that's not who we are. And that's not what we're about. So I think the first thing that we have to do is, is draw the distinction. And one of the things I've said repeatedly during this race is my my issue with Abigail Spanberger and really the modern Democratic Party, right? Not all Democrats, but the modern Democratic Party, modern Democrat leadership is not that it's too liberal. My problem is that it's too authoritarian. It seems like every decision they make, every approach they have to solving a problem always seems to include giving more power to politicians, more power to lobbyists, more power to Washington, D.C. And when you contrast that with our process where we say, look, your ability to succeed in business should not be based off of how good a lobbyist you have. It should be based off of, you know, your work ethic and you going out there and providing products and services that other people want. And we're the ones that are going to make it easy to do that. We're the ones that are not going to be constantly interfering in your business or how you raise your children. We're not going to be the ones trying to monopolize your child's education because we want you to be able to have options so that your kids can succeed. And I think we need to do a much better job of putting that that emphasis once again on the idea that we believe in individual liberty, we believe in opportunity, um, but it, but it really starts from being able to demonstrate that. And then I do think that there are, um, from a messaging standpoint, I'll give you a perfect example of this. When we were debating the $15 minimum wage in the General Assembly, right, the go-to argument that everyone was, you know, starting with was, this is going to hurt small businesses. This is going to hurt small businesses. Well, what a lot of people heard from Republicans is, you don't care about workers. All you care about is businesses. And I made it a point to say, guys, do you realize that the person most hurt by this is actually not the small business? The person most hurt by this is that kid that needs, desperately needs that first job to be able to get the work experience necessary so that they can move up the economic ladder. And you just told that person that they've been priced out of the market. Right. They're not going to get that first opportunity because everywhere you look at this minimum wage increase, you see massive youth unemployment and you are basically holding back an entire generation of young people that desperately need that initial work experience. So, again, the, the fundamental was the same. Right. The, this fifteen dollar minimum wage increase was a bad idea. And Republicans are so used to talking about it from one perspective, the business perspective. And look, that's a valid perspective. But it's also true on the other side, from the worker perspective. You know, why are you going to do this to these to these people that desperately need this initial opportunity? Why are you going to take it away from them? And it changes the dynamic of the conversation. And I think it gets us to a place where somebody that is willing to give us an audience but wants to know that we care about the things that they care about. They, they need to be able to hear the, the right argument, an argument that's relevant to them, not just relevant to our base. I've never heard it framed that way. And I really like that. Um, I'm going to steal <laughs> that argument. Good. Um, <laughs> um, no, I. I want to know, and I want to follow up on Mike's question, what exactly, and, and I, I want to hear it from your perspective, what exactly do you want to try to differentiate yourself, differentiate yourself from kind of, we, 
what would you try to do to maybe be in a different step than Dave Brat? Let me kind of, is there something you would do differently? What are you trying to look for to maybe do differently? And is it the messaging or is it, what would you try to do differently than Congressman Bratt did? Well, look, Dave Bratt's a good friend. And I mean, I'm, we're thrilled that he came out and endorsed us. Um, I mean, Dave and I are obviously different people. And we, we've always had kind of different approaches sometimes on the way we talk about things. But look, I, I think Dave was a good congressman. I think Dave was one of the nicest guys you'd, you'd ever want to meet. Um, my, my approach, so I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to contrast it with Dave. I'll just kind of reemphasize, again, what, what it is that I believe in. Um, you know, the biggest problem I have with a lot of the way the Republicans talk about things is that I don't think we're getting down to the heart of what, again, what is at our real core. And we always come off as being cold, uncaring, and, and let's face it, right, a lot of people within pop culture, whether it's academia, journalism, um, Hollywood, they like to portray Republicans in that light. And then Republican politicians get to the point where they're afraid to go into those, those difficult situations, those difficult town halls. They're afraid to take interviews from people that they think might try to trip them up. And I look at that as like, no, this is one of the main parts of our jobs as elected officials is to be able to use the platform that we have to be able to talk about our principles. So I love going into hostile settings, right? I, that's an opportunity to talk to somebody that might not otherwise give conservative values, uh, Republican principles, a hearing. And what I found is, is that when you, you are willing to go into areas, and so I'll give you a perfect example of this. Criminal justice reform is something that's really important to me. And I've carried legislation on this. And the Trump administration has probably done more for criminal justice reform than any president in decades. Um, but I've gone into environments before where they're looking at me like, you're a Republican. What are you doing talking on a panel about criminal justice reform? I said, well, no, wait a second. This is, this is all about at the core of what I, because I believe that each human being has inherent worth then of course I want a criminal justice system that is going to first and foremost protect innocent people but then I also want something that's going to focus on how do we how do we engage in that sort of rehabilitation that is that is necessary and useful because my end goal is not to keep people locked up in jail their whole life. My end goal is to have people be able to reintegrate into society and to be able to be productive, peaceful, and successful members of society. And so I've I've gone to you know prison graduations when they're actually talking, they they've actually completed degrees or they've completed skills training. And I'll go in and I'll and I'll talk to them. And again, I always get the same look. You're a Republican. Why are you here? Like being for criminal justice reform does not mean I'm against law enforcement. It does not mean I'm against law and order. Uh, but as I pointed out before, you know, police officers live at the business end of every stupid idea that politicians sign into law. And I, I look at things like that as a way to connect with people. And a lot of times what, what they realize is that our differences aren't as stark as they thought they were. Because too many people, we, we've got into this tribal nature within politics where too many people think that you have different outcomes than me. And as I was explaining to one lady on, on a plane once, I think I've told you this story before, Matt. Um, she was a liberal. I'm a conservative. She loved Bernie Sanders. Right? So, but as we were talking about issues, I said, you know what I find so fascinating about this conversation? I said, you and I have different backgrounds. We have, uh, you know, in, in some cases, very different political views. I said, but ultimately, you and I want the same end state. We want people to be happy, healthy, prosperous, and free. And we even agree on what a lot of the problems are. We agree that there's poverty, that there's sickness, that there's violence, and we want to address this. So the real question is, is what is the process to do so? But 
if I'm willing to acknowledge that you want people to be happy, healthy, prosperous, and free, and I want that, well, then let's have a discussion about the process. And that's nowhere near as difficult because now all of a sudden it's not that, you know, I'm good and she's sinister or I'm sinister and she's good. It's these are two people that might have different viewpoints on the process. So let's have a constructive conversation about that and let's see where we agree. And where we disagree, great. We don't necessarily have to work with one another, right? We can try different ways to get to the right solution. But where we agree, let's, let's come together to achieve that end state. But my problem right now with the Democratic Party and the Democratic philosophy or really left-wing philosophy is because I think more and more when they see a problem, there's almost this knee-jerk reaction to give more power to the government. And that always comes at the expense of individual liberty, individual choice, and, and the ability of free people to work together in voluntary cooperation to solve problems. And you know, do we want a society that values voluntary cooperation or do we want a society that is constantly sitting around waiting for the government to coerce them in one direction or the next? And again, I think the more we, the more we talk about it from that framework, the farther that we get. Nick, how do you then, uh, you know, and this is always, I think, a very difficult thing, as a as a Republican, how do you balance that message of individual liberty with you know right now during uh, COVID nineteen? Mm-hmm. There's got to be basically uh, there needs to be a gray area, and I feel like this um, is potential to trip mm-hmm. our party up mm-hmm. in terms of how you know we need to support individual liberty, but to what extent? Because sometimes that individual liberty can be hazardous to someone's health. For example, in Wisconsin. People are just going out to bars, completely being being reckless. What is the gray area between, you know, um, wearing a, you know, staying at home, bringing guns to the Capitol? Like, <laughs> you know, where is our where's our plan? You know, Northam has mishandled this crisis, but yeah. where's our? How do we strike this balance between personal liberty, but also really that doesn't mean you have to surrender personal responsibility either. Oh, no. In fact, I would say that personal responsibility is essential to individual (laughs) liberty. In fact, individual liberty without personal responsibility is just licentiousness. And and that's not what we're talking about. That's not what our founders were talking about. I think when you look at the the beginning stages of, of what was going on with the pandemic, you saw people all across the spectrum to include people like me that said, look, I'm going to do the responsible thing. I'm not going to go out as much. We canceled our events. Like we had some great events set up that I would have been wonderful for us to be able to pull off. And we canceled them because it was the right thing to do. And I think that you saw a vast majority of people engaging in that sort of responsible behavior. Um, Despite the fact that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were encouraging people to go to street festivals. Um, I think where the balance comes into it is obviously, and someone, someone asked me about like, well, in a hurricane, you know, situation, we do mandatory evacuations. And I said, okay, yes, but in a hurricane situation, you know where the hurricane is, you're tracking it, you know where it's going to hit landfall, you got a a reasonable idea of where it's going to hit. And you're trying to allocate your first responder resources as efficiently as possible. And so you put, and I don't think most people have a problem with that, right? Even someone like me, which places such a high value on individual liberty, I look at that, I say, okay, there, maybe there's some constitutional issues with it, but that's not the hill I'm going to die on. That's not the fight I'm going to have. That's very different for where you have something like this, where there seems to be new information coming out every day. And then you see cases like when Governor Northam got caught kind of cooking the numbers when it came to the testing. And all of a sudden people start to lose faith in those institutions. 
And I think anytime you have an institution which has lost faith with the faith with the public, you're going to start to see more civil disobedience. And so the, the biggest responsibility of the government is to understand that even in a moment of crisis, there's a there's a role to play. Right. And, and some of that role has to do with resource allocation. Some of that role has to do with putting out guidance with respect to what happens. Some of it could even be, be to say that, like, look, if you choose to make certain decisions which are harmful, then you might, you know, you might not get access to something that as someone that really needs it and, and um, you know, got hurt through no fault of their own. But when you when you push this kind of draconian measures that I think the governor has done, and when we start to lose faith in the numbers that you're using to justify those measures, free people are going to rebel against that. And quite frankly, you should expect it. Um, unless you're conditioning society to think that, well, this is the new normal. And when the government tells you to go home, then you go home and you don't come back out until they tell you to. And, and let me give a perfect example of, of kind of the more liberty-based approach to this. One of the things that the governor did that I really supported was he started getting rid of COPN laws, right? Certificate of public need and, or not getting rid of it, but suspending them because we needed to get medical services into underserved areas that didn't have them. We started doing more licensure reciprocity with doctors and nurses in other states that previously couldn't work in Virginia. And now they could because we're trying to address a crisis. Now, here's the thing. I was trying to get rid of this stuff before we had a crisis, but if it took a crisis for the governor, governor to see since, then I'll take it, right? Um, those, those are some positive things that we can do that allow, again, free people to cooperate. Let me give you another perfect example, because I know you had him on, I think, uh, a couple of days ago or maybe last week, Pete Snyder. Mm -hmm. Look at how Pete Snyder with his 30-day fund operates, and then go look at how Congress operates when it comes to giving out money to businesses. Pete Snyder worked together with a bunch of investors. Pete Snyder knows what it is to fail in business and he knows what it is to succeed in business. He knows what these small businesses are going through. He knew how to set up a good process to make sure that the money was going to those people that needed it the most, right? He got other people to come along voluntarily and assist him in it. And I can't tell you how many businesses I've had in, in my district, in my area, that have gotten so frustrated with the Small Business Administration, so frustrated with calling the state government who is still trying to collect taxes from them at a time when they need help, right? But then they call up the 30-day fund and within a couple of weeks, they've got to check to make sure that they can pay their rent. So free people, it is, it is an incredible what happens when you allow free people to work together in order to overcome challenges. And, and it shouldn't surprise us, even in a crisis, because if you look at most of the challenges you face throughout your life, those challenges were overcome by some sort of product, technology, service that was brought to you, not by some government agency in D.C. or Richmond, but brought to you by free people working together. So I want to ask a follow-up question to the criminal justice reform question. Yeah. Um, Governor, Governor Northam has been releasing some very violent criminals mm -hmm. that fell before, I believe they fell before Governor Allen put in truth in sentencing. and. Yeah they have the ability to parole. I, I'm very concerned about that. And I wanted to get yeah. your perspective. You're the first legislator we've had on in a couple episodes. I wanted to get your perspective on that. Oh, it's, it's horrible, <laughs> right? The, the first aspect of criminal justice, the criminal justice system is to provide justice. And, and unfortunately, I, I think the governor right now is, he's certainly taking into consideration the concerns of the, of the convicted felon or the violent offender, but he's not taking, he doesn't appear to me to be taking into concern, you know, the, the needs and the justice that was afforded to those victims. 
and it is completely unconscionable to me that you could release someone that was guilty of a violent crime, that harmed somebody, that murdered somebody, that robbed from somebody, that perhaps sexually assaulted somebody, and now you're going to release them back, and they weren't even giving notification to local Commonwealth attorneys or families of victims in time before they had been released. So this is a complete departure for how we have been doing things in Virginia for, gosh, the last you know, couple decades. And it makes no sense. It makes no sense to the same governor that wants to constantly threaten people and use our local, local law enforcement to potentially punish or incarcerate a small business owner because they've opened up when the governor doesn't think they should. At the same time, he's releasing people that legitimately hurt people back into the communities without even giving advance notice or sufficient notice before the release back. So it makes no sense. You, you can't paint that with a criminal justice reform brush. That's not criminal justice. It's not criminal justice reform. It's absolute nonsense. And it's, I would argue, the complete opposite of justice. Nick, what is your, you know, your role as a state legislator, but also, you know, um, potentially, uh, you know, if you win this thing, you might be uh, a member of Congress. What would, how would you get our schools back on track? You know, for example, there's no clear cut mm -hmm. um, way how to do this. The governor is not putting forward a plan. Um, you know, quite frankly, I mean, I don't even think uh, the White House at this time is spearheading um, because we're figuring this out as it comes. How would we get our, our kids back to school? You know, and in Virginia, different counties start at different times. Mm -hmm. If Southwest is able to open up in August, I'm up mm -hmm. in Northern Virginia. We probably, you know, it's looking like realistically, we might not be able to open till October, maybe yeah. even beyond that, you know, yeah. at least in the traditional sense. If we can't open up at the same time, how do we even do the SOLs? Where does this yeah. go? Yeah. Well, and <laughs> don't get me started on SOLs. I mean, if, yeah. If is this a chance to get rid of it? If one of the casualties of COVID is SOLs, I, I might not be upset about that particular problem, right? Um, here's where here's where I think part of the issue stems from, and and you know, Dickie Bell did a great job carrying legislation trying to expand access to uh, online education. And I remember we all fought for it and the Democrats fought against it. And their, their argument was, well, not everybody has good internet access. And you know what? That's true. And that's another issue yeah. that we've tried to work together on. But the bottom line is, is that if you're coming to a situation now where you might have to reopen schools and you might need social distancing standards in order to effectively do so, how great would it have been if we would have supported what Dickie Bell was doing, what the, if the Democrats would have supported it, because then every student that did have good internet access could go to school online and then those schools that didn't could be prioritized for places within the physical classroom. So, you know, these are the sort of things that as we look at what I would what I would classify as government monopolization of education, right? Trying to run things from Richmond, trying to run things from Washington, D.C. I would love to see an education system that puts more emphasis on dollars following students, not only because I think it would be significantly better for students, especially those students that in, in schools that are, are bottom line is they're failing those students. I think it would be better for teachers. And, and Mike, I know you have studied to be a teacher. You've been a teacher. Your dad's a teacher. Yeah. One of the most frustrating things I experienced when I first became a delegate was having a meeting with a group of teachers that wanted to meet with me, but promised me that we had to meet in anonymity, right? I could never share any of their names. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like what is going on that you would be so scared to talk to your elected representative? And what it really came down to is they were spending 30 to 40% of their week 
just trying to comply with state, local, and federal mandates for their classroom, right? And God help them if they diverted from, you know, some sort of mandate in the, in the planning calendar in order to do a teachable moment or in order to help a student that had specific needs that they knew how to address. No, 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 no. Everything had to be lined up just so, and then you're going to be graded off of your SOL scores as a teacher. That's insane, and, but again, this, this is what happens when you have government, when you have politicians micromanaging the process. If we actually had something where dollars can follow students and students could have more freedom and parents could have more freedom, that would also create an environment where if you look at a school and you look at how they allocate their budget, they, have, they allocate their budget right now in accordance with what politicians in Richmond tell them to do. But if you actually had parents making more of those decisions, let me ask you something. Do you think teachers are beginning to pay raise or administrators? I think it would be teachers. Yeah. Because they're the ones producing the product that the students are after, right? And education. And so, and not only that, but you would be able to address things like it would be a much more flexible system to address education concerns, especially in times of crisis, because there wouldn't be this emphasis on, hey, let's go cram 1,100 students into one little building and educate them, right? There would be different options. There would be different tutoring options, online options. You would have the ability to set up smaller uh, units when you needed to in, in a case like this. So I think what it comes down to is, when I look at how the free market has approached everything else that we see, whether it's communication, whether it's being able to travel, whether it's your, you know, your smartphone or your laptop or your computer or furniture, we all acknowledge that the, that the private sector does a better job you know, meeting people's individual needs. I think it's time for us to allow a little bit more freedom and opportunity with the sort of education you get because I want an education system which is directed toward the individual student. Um, I don't see how you do that when you're trying to micromanage it all from either Richmond or Washington, D.C. I think you have to put more control in the hands of parents and teachers. And, uh, you know, so, you know, from a, from a, a practical, like right now standpoint, Dickie Bell's bill and, and pushing more of the online capacity would have been great uh, for in a moment like this in a crisis where we, we would have had more students that could have been educated at home and then left space open for those students that didn't have a sufficient internet access so that they could continue their education. But long term, we are going to have to move toward a system that allows for more freedom and opportunity because ultimately it's, it's going to better serve students and I think it's going to significantly better serve teachers. Yeah, I mean, it's right now, I think the biggest concern is, right, you know, as you, as you mentioned, the internet is definitely one concern. The other concern is, um, right now, I think there's the kids that are always going to do well would benefit in online learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm concerned about a lot of, uh, for example, like my EL students, my EL yeah. population, right yeah. now they're not doing the assignments because, um, number one, the parents might not be home. They're trying to still find work during this time and they need that hands-on learning component too. So we're all trying to figure it out because it's, I think, you know, my concern would be online definitely helps in a situation like this, Mm -hmm. but for those kids that might not have access to internet or devices or whatnot, they might be left out. And then, you know, we might have to develop classes, you know, our, I teach in a title one school, 22 kids in one classroom, those might have to be staggered as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're right. It is all based around data. We just got to, I guess, all work together on this because I think far too often Republicans haven't had a clear vision um, Mm -hmm. on education and how to really marry those two ideas, uh, whether, you know, to be pro-teacher, but individual student, you know, and individual parent. 
Well, and again, this is the big problem Republicans have a lot of times when they message to a particular issue. They're so they're so busy or so used to messaging in one direction that what I like to remind people is that, look, if, if something is true and something is good policy, then it's not an either or position between the business owner and the employee. It's not an either or proposition between the student or the teacher. The more the more individual choice and freedom that you give within those choices, the actual the more each side of the equation benefits. You know, like I, I like to tell people that when we're talking, the key feature of, of capitalism, let's use this as an example. The key feature of capitalism is not competition, it's cooperation. Because the only way a transaction, transaction takes place is if both parties agree to it. And the only reason they'll agree to it is if they think it's to mutual benefit. And you're right, we have done a horrible job of, of almost creating an us and them type argument. And that is not the reality of what we believe on a principled level or even on a practical level. But if we're not willing to get out of our comfort zone and, and make those arguments, well then I, it's only on us when people have never heard it and therefore they're not compelled by it. So we have like grilled the crap out of you for the past 30 minutes. Um, let's ask an easy question. What are you reading right now? And no, you cannot say the wealth of nations or something like that. Although <laughs> the Rand Paul gold standard. Kelvin and Hobbes. I've already read all of them. <laughs> um, so right now I'm actually reading. Uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if you're going to get mad at me. I'm reading the great society by Amity Schles. Okay. And um, if you've never read Amity Schles before, she is a brilliant author. She wrote The Forgotten Man, which was all about the New Deal and the Great Depression. And she does this great job of combining, um, and I'll give you an example. Um, J.D. Powell wrote a book called FDR's Folly, where he really went into kind of the academic argument against some of these, you know, New Deal programs and how they, they hurt rather than helped, even though they, you know, they, they got a good rap in the history books. But when you go and you look at the data, it really doesn't add up. And it was very good. It was a very academically rigorous book, very, very well sourced. Amity Schles does a great job of combining that rigorous data and analytics and adding a personal story and, and narrative to it to where you're not just reading about facts and figures, you're reading about people that were living in that era. And she does a great job too of actually providing context, right? She's not one of these authors that says, okay, this guy's the boogeyman and they're evil and, and they did the wrong thing. It's like, no, you know, people were making decisions oftentimes based off of what they thought was best and sometimes they were wrong. So what can we learn from it? And I was just so impressed with the work that she did on her book, Coolidge, about Calvin Coolidge. I was so impressed with her book on Forgotten Man that when I saw that she had done one on The Great Society, I was like, oh, I can't wait because she is. She's a very engaging author. And I'm about a quarter of the way through it right now. And, and I love it because, you know, there's all these names that I've, I've heard of before. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of what I've heard about him was, oh, that's, that's the bad guy and this is the good guy, right? This is the antagonist, this is the protagonist. She doesn't write that way. Um, she provides you context on where they're coming from. She shares with you a lot of times deeply personal experiences that they have that, that formulated their worldview so that even if you don't agree with the conclusions that they come to, you can still appreciate why they came to them. And I think that's just so critical for communication, especially in an, an era of modern political dialogue, which is so largely uncivil. And uh, so, yeah, The Great Society Bay, Amity Schley is a, a fantastic, 
fantastic book. And then I'm usually always reading something by Thomas Sowell, right? I, I don't know how many times I've read basic economics or um, intellectuals in society, but um, Vision of the Anointed is, is one I'm also reading now by, by Thomas Sowell, who I just think is a fantastic author. Have you brushed up on watching, um, you know, the series about your fellow libertarian, Joe Exotic? <laughs> we ask everyone have you watched tiger king For yeah sure. and did carol baskin I, I have been a proud republican since the day i could vote right um but all right i watched the first four <laughs> episodes of, of tiger king and I, and I i fell off then but i actually got asked this question in a town hall oh. i got asked this question like you missed his bid for governor his bid for governor was yeah. and how he was got a manager at Walmart. <laughs> yes, in the ammo section. Well, I, I will say this. I will say this. If the election were between Joe Exotic or Carol Baskins, I am Team Joe. <laughs> okay. Well, then I think you just won the. I think that you just won the seventh on that. We're, we declare you the winner. Yeah. If, if you are pro Carol Baskin, I would say. Uh, I, I think you hate America if you're pro Carol Baskin. I think that might guaranteed you're going to see some stuff this year. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched the Army Navy game where the Army guys have big sand, signs that say, like, Navy likes Nickelback or something like that. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to see, you're going to see signs of the Army Navy game this year where it's like, you know, Navy loves Carol Baskin or something like that. Yep. Well, I, I thought about you. I'm currently reading Dan Crenshaw's book, Fortitude. Oh, yeah, yeah. I picked it up, and I thought, this is another politician's biography. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm at this weird place in my life where I kind of need a little bit of – I'm, I'm, I'm after I'm, – I've turned 25. I'm getting closer to 30. I want to kind of figure out who I am. Mm -hmm. And it's all about leadership, and yeah. it's all about um, who you want to be as a person. And I was not right. expecting that. Yeah. And so – I want to know, you know, talking about Crenshaw and you and, you know, Denver and Scott Taylor and all these, these, these Iraq and Afghanistan veterans that are coming home and they're, yeah. they're getting involved in public service. And mm -hmm. one of the things I've always loved about you is that line you gave about cowardice is contagious, but so is courage. Yeah. I love that line. Like <laughs> you need to tattoo it on your arm or something. Um, I don't know if you're a tattoo. We can, we can go to the tattoo parlor together, Matt. We can knock that out. <laughs> hey, I've got a tattoo. I don't know about the rest of you. But I, I've got two. I've got two. What? I'm not showing them right now. <laughs> no, I, that's okay, but I didn't know. <laughs> now we've got more questions asked. <laughs> um, this is where the rating on the podcast changes, right? <laughs> yep. Um, but no, like, I, I think – we have these Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans mm -hmm. like you and Congressman Crenshaw who are coming home and saying, I want to get involved in public service. Yeah. And I want to do something better. Can I, can I ask, is that, was it more because of the frustration of dealing with, you know, a lot of my generation feels that Iraq was just a boondoggle towards the yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, where does that come from? Let me ask. That. I think there there was a lot of frustration um, with the way that the war was conducted, and look, I I went into it just totally gung ho, completely supporting it, and um, and I still support the things that we did there, right? I, I still support, like, and by that I mean the things that individual soldiers, units, Navy, sailors, Marines, airmen, 
I still support what, what we did with the mission that we were given. Um, there was a couple things that, that frustrated me. And, and when I talked to Dan, because, you know, we had gone to Dan Crenshaw for an endorsement and, um, you know, that wasn't something he was just going to do, right? He wanted to actually talk with me, figure out where I'm at. And, and I consider it a great honor that he come in, he came and endorsed us. Um, but part of what we're, we've shared with each other is some of our stories. And Sean Parnell, who's running for Congress in the Pennsylvania's 17th district, we had him on our podcast and we specifically talked about, you know, war stories from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think one of the common threads that you see is there's this idea in kind of Hollywood that the reason people join the military is because they didn't have any many other options, right? They didn't get into college. And then when they go overseas to fight, they're not fighting for the country, right? They're fighting for the person to the left and the right of them. That's garbage. Um, almost, almost every single person I served with um, wanted to be there. And they, did, they believed in something greater than themselves. And that's not to say that we all agreed on every issue of politics or foreign policy or, or theology or whatever. But there, were, there was something about that, that service, the relationships that you build within the service, and then truly and then genuinely believing in our country. And having the opportunity to go all over the world and having the opportunity to go and, and fight in Iraq um, taught me a great deal of appreciation for what it is that we have here. And we don't have it here by accident, right? It's, it, you know, you hear all this talk nowadays about privilege. Um, Memorial Day is coming up. Right. I believe we are blessed as a country. But the reason why we have what we have is because some of the finest people I knew were willing to drop everything in their lives, go overseas, and potentially give up everything in order to preserve it. And some of them did. And some of them did. And I have no doubt if we were to bring them back right now and say, would you do it again? Their answer would be yes. And so I want us always to be a country that produces the sort of men and women that I had the privilege of serving with in some very difficult situations. Because they are the sort of people that you can count on regardless. And they're the sort of people that when they believe in something and they believe it's true and they believed in the truth of this country, that was something that they were willing to not just live life for. That was something they were willing to give it all up for. And so as I look at the different philosophical battles that we're in right now in this country, I do believe that we're at somewhat of a defining moment. Are we going to continue along the course of the American experiment, which does place such an emphasis on individual liberty and on you having the opportunity and the right to live your life the way you want? Or are we going to go down this, this path of government micromanagement where we just hope that some bureaucrats and politicians are capable of micromanaging and running our lives better than we are? And when I look at that, that is not an option. Because one of those options is something I never fought for. It's not what my friends fought for. And the idea that the kids of my friends that I lost would have to grow up in a country any less worthy of the sacrifice that their parents made is absolutely abhorrent to me. And so it, it's not that I have a love for politics. It is certainly not that I have a love for Washington, D.C. 
but I do have a love for the principles and the values which have actually informed this country. And I do believe that I have an obligation to continue to fight for it. At one point it was in uniform and another person, and at another point now it's, it's in the debate, it's in making the argument. And I think you, the reason why you see such passion from a, a lot of our veterans is because uh, we've come face to face with the actual cost of, of what it takes to keep a country truly free. Well, I didn't plan on started. Oh, it. Matt, this is like the third interview in the row. <laughs> Matt got. I didn't plan on. I didn't plan on that, but that was. <laughs> you need to cut that into a campaign commercial because that 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 was that was that's the Nick Freitas I always want to see. That's the one that I love, and that's the one. Oh, I love that. I don't know. I love it. <laughs> Well, Nick, Nick, thank you so much for coming on with us and just, you know, discussing all things 7th. And, you know, we really appreciate your time here, especially speaking with Bearing Drift. And, you know, anytime you want to come on. Well, no, hey, thank you guys very much. <laughs> I appreciate all the hard work you, you put into this. And, and you put into all the work that you do with your, your writing and, and, uh, and now the podcast. And what, it's, what a timely addition, right? Yeah. Um, so, no, thank you guys very much for what you do. And, and would love to come on again in the future. Well, we thank you awesome. for coming on. Um, we appreciate it. Um, have a wonderful Memorial Day. You too. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, be with your family. Um, Mike, we probably you're going to release this Memorial day, the week Memorial day. So, um, mm -hmm. enjoy that. Enjoy your family. Remember the sacrifice of our great members of our military. And we appreciate your time and hope you come back to grand new podcast. Thank you so much.